Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Laura Lynn Violanta. Laura Lynn is the Director of Advancement at NMCAN, an organization that provides mentoring, coaching, and advocacy services based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Well, welcome, Laura Lynn. I'm so glad that you could join us with our podcast series here. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Lynn. I appreciate you having me. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Please share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you're connected with the foster care system? Sure. So uh, I work for an organization called New Mexico CAN based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I'm the director of advancement there. So I kind of oversee um, our team who handles all of our external relationships and partners where it comes to working with other community-based organizations that are supporting young people, our volunteers, just working with local media as well as donors and funders. And so I've been with the organization for about five years and my history with working with young people kind of stems back all the way from the start of my career. And I've always been interested in how to, and curious about how to better support young people. And so my career has always been in the nonprofit sector, uh, working with young folks impacted by systems or just those young people who just really need additional supports. Because of course, we know that young people in systems kind of cross into so many other spaces and yeah, so that's kind of how I landed at NMCAN, and it's been a great five years. I can't believe it's been that long already. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting five years if you count this year in yeah, for sure. That's right. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So what is it that New Mexico CAN does, and what does CAN stand for? So we have a 30-year history of working within the field of child welfare, and it was probably about 10 years ago, um, just a little over 10 years ago, that we actually started to make a strategic decision about shifting our work. At the time, here in our state, no one was really focused on supporting this specific population of young people aging out of foster care. And through some conversations with the Children's Quarter Improvement Commission here, as well as some other community partners, we started to really kind of take a look about what that would look like. And so that began our journey around engaging with young people impacted by foster care. And so since then, our programming has just uh, started to grow. And, you know, we really focus on a couple of different buckets. First, when we started that programming 10 years ago, we brought young people to the table and said, hey, what do y'all need, right? Because we understand that young people impacted by systems, the last thing they may, they may potentially want to do is participate in another program or another organization who may be working closely with systems, right? Like most young folks, they're wanting to explore freedom and their agency and all of those kinds of things. And we know that sometimes that doesn't happen in systems. So we really wanted to build something with true authentic youth engagement, right? Them telling us what they really need. And so our programming started in just healthy relationship building. And that was the launch of our volunteer mentor program where, you know, young people are really uh, we're supporting them and really just focusing on helping build chosen family and learning about healthy relationships since so many times relationships are severed while in systems or don't have healthy ways to develop. 
So that was where that started. Um, we also do, in regards to direct service, one-on-one coaching with young people, typically focused on supports related to education or employment. We also were a partner of the Annie E. Casey Foundation's Jim Casey Youth Opportunities Initiative. So we have leveraged that national relationship to implement a financial literacy program, a curriculum that they developed in partnership with young people impacted by foster care. So we have that here for young people. But then the other component of our work that we find is really critical is the policy and advocacy work. Mm -hmm. As part of that, right, like when we know as young people are in direct service, right, like they're experiencing higher education, public schools, the healthcare system, all of these places that um, may have some barriers to success and participation in that space, right? And so we find our direct service is a critical component to inform our policy and advocacy work. So when we see some barriers for young people on a recurring basis, we want to figure out how do we remove those barriers. And um, that's led to a lot of our policy advocacy work here in the state. We're usually acting at a state level. And I've had some success in the past several years where back in 2014, New Mexico passed a tuition waiver for young people um, who've been impacted by systems where they are able to attend public college or community college uh, free of tuition. And then we've also done a tax credit for local employers to hire foster youth to serve as an incentive for hiring them, recognizing that there may be some additional coaching and support that may be needed um, if they have limited work experience. And so that's really kind of the bulk of our work, all with a goal of really ensuring that young people have a healthy transition to adulthood and really just working in sincere partnership with young people to kind of do some positive systemic change. Okay. I'd like to tackle a little bit about each of those that you've mentioned. But first, help me understand the youth that you work with. And maybe it depends on what exactly you're doing. So you have youth that you provide mentors to. Mm -hmm. You have youth that you're coaching. Mm -hmm. And then you have youth that are involved in the advocacy work, correct? That's right. That's right. So what does each of those look like for the youth? About how many youth are you serving? What does it mean for them to have a volunteer mentor, for example? We could start there with the mentor program. I just like to, if you could paint a picture of what that program looks like, and then we'll, we'll hit the other two as well. Leading up to 2020, we were serving between 100 and 150 young people annually. This year, it's been a little bit lower just because of COVID. And, you know, we've had to kind of adjust what coaching looks like. And for the mentor program, and this is really the case for all of our programming, we really try to have it feel as organic as possible, right? Like our staff really does a really great job in planning on the back end to um, ensure that we're kind of covering all of the things that we need to from a programming perspective. But from the young person's perspective, we want it to feel as organic as possible in regards to healthy relationship building, right? So if we receive a referral for a young person, what typically happens is, you know, they'll meet with one of our staff, a youth engagement coordinator. And so they'll have just an individual conversation where our team is just talking to them to just say, hey, so tell me about your goals. Like, tell me about yourself. Like, what are you interested in doing? And how do you see NMCAN helping you, right? And really just having a broad, open conversation because with our wide array of programming, there's no one specific pathway 
because that's part of the building agency and opportunities for young people to kind of make their own decisions around their lives, where we want to really hear from them about what they want to focus on. And then we'll support them based on our range of programming, how how they want to engage. So it's really self-directed. For the mentoring program, for young people who are interested in learning about that, it's really about getting to know them, getting to know their interests. And then our volunteers go through an extensive screening and training process where we ensure that they align with our organizational values and they are able to support young people in an authentic way because the goal of the mentoring program is really healthy relationships. Whereas I know some other mentoring programs, uh, they may be very goal-focused, right? Here, let me ensure that you are able to graduate from high school on time or, you know, I'm going to do very specific things. And we understand um, some of our mentors may come to us with those intentions, but we like to be very clear that if it eventually gets to that point, we think that's great. But the real focus of this mentoring relationship based on that feedback from young people over 10 years ago, was they really just need someone to turn to for support, right? And who isn't going to judge them about the decisions that they're making? Because, I mean, I think when we think about other young people, right, who have a supportive um, network and family around them who have access, they're going to make decisions that parents or aunties and uncles may not necessarily agree with, but they understand that that's a part of healthy adolescent development. They are going to make those decisions. And so we feel that that's equally important. And those mentors are really there to be supportive folks that young people can turn to for support and just really focus one on healthy relationship building. And then the rest all follows, right? Like when they realize that there's this adult who has my back and is in spite of us may not necessarily agreeing on every decision in my life. And we may have challenging conversations like this person is really there for me. And then that's when we really see the healthy development and the recognition of building strong networks. And then you can move forward in those places towards getting support and sharing around goal setting around other things. You said earlier, there was a term you said, which was chosen family. Mm -hmm. I like that phrase. How do the youth respond to that phrase? For the young people that I've spoken to, I think they do respond to that in a positive way, right? Because we recognize that, you know, all of our communities have various levels of, they all look different, right? And it's not for NMCAN or volunteers or anyone to really judge other different family scenarios, because we all know they come in different shapes and sizes and, you know, circumstances and all of those kinds of things. So I think they respond well to it. And recognizing that chosen family can be really blended in many ways, right? There's still variants of, you know, chosen family that they may meet through NMCAN, as well as their biological families and foster families, and even folks who were supporting them while they were in systems. Mm -hmm. Sure. I, I think I'm going to have to use that phrase. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, about the mentors, I've heard from some programs that they struggle to get enough mentors. Do you find that you have the same struggle or do you have enough mentors? And what I'm leading to is <laughs> how can people contact you if they're interested in being a mentor? Sure. We're always open to having folks contact us if they're interested in mentoring. I mean, we're a relatively small organization. Um, we have about 
13 folks on staff, and that covers a wide range of programming that we have. And so we love to have, you know, around 40 to 50 volunteers supporting us annually. And I'm not quite sure about what our current numbers are, but um, if folks are interested, because we also recognize too for that mentoring program, like we ask for a three-year commitment, because again, we are trying to build healthy relationships, consistency, all of those things. And then those three years, they're receiving ongoing support from our team, right? That youth engagement coordinator who initially met with that young person, they're still providing coaching in other areas of their life, right? So there's that support in that way. And then our community engagement coordinators who are training those volunteers, they provide support to that volunteer to ensure that they have access to any resources or supports that they need. And so for those three years, our team will be as hands-on as needed uh, to support the healthy development of that relationship. But, you know, after those three years, we know that if it's persisted in that space, they may not be receiving as much ongoing support as they need to, but like they're always invited to what we call our intentional community building events, which is really just, again, about being with chosen family and supportive networks and also just having fun together and just being in community. Yeah. If folks want to contact you, what is your website address? Is there a form there that they should fill out? Sure. If they go to our website, which is NMCAN, so New Mexico can, C-A-N.org, um, and there's a volunteer section there, they can just fill out an inquiry form and then our team will be uh would be in touch with them. And then we usually have an orientation quarterly. So volunteers, if they're interested, they can come to a one hour orientation just to learn about us. And we've been doing that, you know, online, we've transitioned um, so much of our work to a virtual space because of the pandemic. And so a lot of our training our, all of our training, I should say, is has been transitioned into a virtual space. And so we want to make sure that people are as safe and healthy as possible. And, and so we've done all of that transition. And yeah, they can learn more about, uh, about it on our website. Terrific. And is the mentoring being done virtually right now? Yes. I mean, the shorter answer to that is yes, because New Mexico is one of the states who's trying to do a reset right now. For existing volunteers, you know, we were recommending, of course, you know, if they meet with their mentees to really just practice those public safety guidelines at the time. Now, here in New Mexico, we are in a space where it's only essential businesses that are open. So we are also really recommending that based on those guidelines for folks to really just stay within their households. Mentoring can be done in a virtual space. Um, a lot of our staff who provide coaching to young people, that has been moved into a virtual space, phone, you know, <laughs> Facebook Messenger also has been in a very effective way to try and do some coaching. So we're really trying to limit in-person meetings. Right. I get that. Are the mentors the ones who are coaching? Do your staff do the coaching? What's that delineation between mentoring and coaching? Sure. So coaching from our staff's perspective, right, is really more focused on goal setting for young people. Back to that, um, what we call that initial meeting one-on-one -on -one with our staff and a young person. You know, it's really just a brief conversation about like, hey, how are things going? What do you want to focus on? And, you know, those conversations can range between I just need a job right now 
to, you know, I'm trying to navigate Medicaid, but I am trying to access this type of benefit and I'm having some problems because I don't have all of my paperwork. Our staff really try to be the resource connectors and help navigate a lot of those things to ensure that young people are able to achieve whatever goals or objectives that they're working through, right? It can And it can really run the gamut because we keep a perspective of trying to address all these different life domains ranging from education, employment, financial literacy, even to just healthy identity development, because we recognize all of these components help feed into another. And so our staff with young people is really there to just help them figure out what are their goals? How can we be supportive in uh, linking you to those resources and supporting you through that process? And then um, our team usually just checks in with them on a regular basis to just be like, how's it going? How's your job going? Any concerns? Like what's happening? There was a story about a young person that comes to mind recently that one of my colleagues had shared where back at the top of COVID, I think she had helped him find a job recently because that was his priority. And so he was able to find a job at a local restaurant, save up some money, but then through ongoing coaching sessions with her, with um, my colleague, my teammate, he said, you know what, now that I have a job, I want to actually save some of this money because I want to find my own, own apartment. Like he was living in a living situation that wasn't really healthy for him. He didn't really want to stay in that situation. So then she was like, great, okay, let's figure out what housing programs you're eligible for, right? And let's um, go through that process. And she was right there with him every step of the way. We do with, not for. That's another um, approach that we really value where that young person have and um, I'm sure, as you probably know through conversations with many others, right? Sometimes signing up for programs and services may not be the most streamlined and clear process, um, especially for someone who may have limited access to internet or a computer or even transportation, right? So my teammate was working with this young person to navigate a website where the application still had to be dropped off physically, or, or I think it was like emailed, right? It wasn't like a web portal, but they had to print out some very hard to navigate documents, fill those out, bring them to the service provider, and then also take a lengthy bus ride during COVID to have the housing interview in person that still had to happen in person, coaching him through that space. And then when he was eligible for a housing program, then having to identify an apartment, and then even have a potentially challenging conversation with a landlord about an eviction that he had on his record from a previous housing provider, and then everything to kind of concluding and receiving his keys. That long, lengthy process that I think so many of us take for granted as just you apply for housing, you navigate all the things that I think most of us have had family members to turn to and be like, what does this mean? Like, that coach was there to be that supportive person when he didn't understand certain things and when he got anxious about how do you explain this history that you know you messed up, but how do you advocate on behalf of yourself to ensure that that doesn't prevent you from future success? So that was a really great process. And then even from there, right, he had stable housing, he was doing awesome. And then I think this past fall, he signed up for classes at the local community college and is now doing well. 
that whole process was slowly doing some building blocks with him over the past year, which we recognize, you know, for some folks, it takes no time. For some folks, they just need a little bit more support. So yeah, I think that's really how we try to approach our way of coaching with young people where you can see how uh, this, so for example, this young person doesn't necessarily have a mentor, right? But that would just be another support to just even be there as a person to turn to when they were potentially nervous or frustrated or any of those things. We don't expect that mentor to do all of that linking and navigating all of those systems alongside that young person, right? That's what our team is for. But to have someone just, again, building a true community of supports around these young people to ensure that they have as much support and access to opportunities as, you know, so many other young people do. Right. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned helping the youth learn how to advocate for himself, herself. Mm -hmm. So when you are talking about your policy and advocacy work, do you engage the youth that you have through your mentoring and coaching programs to also advocate on a broader scale to state leaders and decision makers? Do you do that yourselves as the staff? I guess I'm just wondering, do you link the youth and help them get beyond thinking about just individual advocacy, but also, hey, I can help my peers as well by advocating on the broader level? Yes. Uh, We have a program that's called Youth Leaders, and this is really young people who are really taking the lead on a lot of our policy and advocacy work, but any young person is really open to, and um, that's also self-directed. So for a young person who may be interested in learning more about what does policy and advocacy even mean, every year we do some advocacy work during the uh, state legislative session that happens. And so there's some lead up into that space, but we're working with young people around advocacy kind of throughout the year. For example, we have a policy blueprint that kind of outlines some of our policy and advocacy priorities for the next few years. And that was done through some open meetings for any young people to come and join us and tell us. And then we walk them through a facilitated conversation around what are some of the challenges that y'all are facing, right? And so we took all of that feedback and from the initial info gathering and data gathering to reviewing drafts of the policy blueprint to its unveiling, which is also on our website. You know, young people were engaged all throughout that process. And then young people who are interested in continuing in that advocacy space, right, like the more focused space, will offer some leadership workshops. So as we get ready for the 2021 session, we're holding a communication kind of basics training for young people. Whoever wants to come and join us, they can just learn like, hey, what are the basics of communication? How do you introduce yourself? to another person based on the environment, right? Like we know that introductions may look very different between if you're in a classroom with your peers, how you introduce yourself versus how do you introduce yourself to an elected official in our state, right? Like what do those two things look like and how are they different? How are they similar? How are you getting across what you want to say? So we do all of those things and it's really Again, so much of our work is self-directed by young people. So um, for folks who are wanting to be 
engaged in our youth leader program, they're always welcome to learn more about it, recognizing that young people's levels of engagement and commitment may vary, right? Because based on school, based on work, based on if they have children, you know, there are so many variables that can impact their level of participation, but we really want any young person who's interested in our policy work, we want to ensure that they have access to that. So how do youth get involved in your program? Can they contact you directly or is it usually through referrals? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, right? So we do have a referral on our website that any community partner can fill out on our website if they know of a young person. And that could be a peer, right? Another young person who's in our programs who, if they want to fill that out for their friends who they think would be great or for other community or youth serving organizations that Um, have young people who they think would be interested in our programs. Um, We have a good relationship with New Mexico's Children, Youth, and Families Department, which is the system that oversees foster care here. And so our team has done presentations to their staff um, at recurring staff meetings just to ensure that they're aware of our programming. And we have also you know, some postcards that have youth-friendly language um, that young people, we can easily hand them out at events where young people are. We've historically done some tabling in the past, you know, at other meetings for young people. But really our most effective way of reaching other young people is through word of mouth. And again, going back to that feeling of organic healthy relationship development, those intentional community building events. And again, it has shifted in 2020, but we have historically had events throughout the year. Young people engaged in our programs are welcome to join, but they can bring friends, chosen family, family who they um, want to engage. And we've done everything from, you know, there was usually a summer fun kind of scavenger hunt event that we would do. We had a holiday party usually every December. And then we also would have a hiking and camping series where New Mexico is such a beautiful state where there's incredible hiking trails all within the Albuquerque metro area where you can be in the mountains in like 30 minutes, which is pretty incredible. So we would do a lot of those things, right? Where young people, if they're in our programs, it's just like, hey, how's it going? You know, this is my friend. They're interested in learning about our programs and, you know, come join us for this hike. And since we usually have staff at each of those events, it's just an opportunity, again, to have just an informal conversation with young people to be like, okay, so it's great to meet you. This is what NMCAN does, get to know them a little bit better, all of those things, and have it feel as seamless as possible in regards to just getting to know folks. Yeah, I definitely like that approach. Now, how would you say that COVID-19 is affecting the youth themselves the most, the, the youth you work with? Yeah. So back in the spring, we started to have some conversations with young people, right? Because we made the decision to close our office. A lot of our coaching, as I had mentioned before, moved to a virtual space where, or either through video chat or phone or just chat or text. And when we asked young people at that point, you know, how COVID had affected them, so many of them, it has just really shined a light on kind of the challenges that young people face who are impacted by foster care and systems. You know, they were still trying to, and all of the inequities that they experience. So just the challenges of 
navigating trying to find a job. Um, they were still trying to look for work. You know, some of them are still considered essential employees because they work at your local grocery store. They work at restaurants where they're doing takeout and are trying, they still have to pay for, you know, all of the bills that they are paying for. So I think for them, their lives continued to remain challenging and difficult because of the barriers that they face. COVID just made it more difficult. All of the same barriers that they have experienced continue to be. And so since then, right since that spring, we've been really trying to just continue to figure out how to address so many of those barriers. So over the summer, we did a lot of work in regards to getting young people internet access and like Wi-Fi hotspots because so much even to file for the one-time stimulus that happened over the summer, or even to apply for jobs. Some restaurants or places would accept printed applications that they could just go and fill out, right, requiring things online. So really working to ensure that they had access to technology and Wi-Fi, right, which we are increasingly seeing as a basic need in order to successfully function within our society. And so we did a lot of work in regards to that to ensure that they had access to all of those resources and just continuing to be trying to be responsive to those needs. And we have been working with the Children, Youth and Families Department in the state to ensure that all of the things that they're doing, right, any resources that are being developed for young people, we're trying to connect young people to those resources as quickly as possible. Right. You actually make me think of a question I should have asked up front, which is, do you primarily work with young people who are going to be aging out or who have already aged out, or is it a mix? So it's a mix. The population that we serve, our guidelines are ages 14 right until their 26th birthday. So that's the gamut of young people that we work with. And we find that Again, since so much of our programming is self-directed, like we can also see waves and ebbs and flows of engagement within our programming. If they are in foster care at the time, we may get to know a young person at age 16. So they may get to know our staff, come to a couple of hikes, learn about, you know, our financial literacy program. But, you know, when they turn 18, which is uh, such a typical thing to do for folks this age, they want to see what the world is like on their own, right? And so we may not hear from them for a while, but then usually around 19, 20, they start to realize that they do need some support. Like all of us, we all need support around us in order to navigate new experiences. And so we may see them come back at ages 19, 20, right? And then just really based on kind of their goal setting and kind of how things are going. But yeah, so we work with that age range. It's really a wide range, but we do find that young people are more deeply engaged in our work as they're getting older. Right. What's the age where they have to age out of the system in New Mexico? Sure. Up until July of this past year, right, young people aged out at age 18. During the 2019 legislative session, through some advocacy for many of the young people that we worked with, the Fostering Connections Act was passed at that 2019 session. That was extended supports for young people ages 18 to 21, where there's some additional benefits that they can apply to. They are able to receive some additional kind of wellness reviews and supports from the court system just to kind of check in and ensure that they have access to those kinds of things. And it's really trying to ensure that those are age appropriate supports for those 18, 19, 20, and 21 year olds, right? Because that has to look different. 
we've been working with the State Department here to uh, try and ensure that we're addressing so many of those pieces. And so we do now have that what I know a lot of states call extended care here in New Mexico, and it just became live in July of this past year. And NMCAN continues to work with the state to try and figure out what are those appropriate supports look like? Because again, we just don't want to delay the cliff that they're falling off of. We want to make sure that these are learn from all of the other states who have extended care in their states from the successes and the lessons from all of those folks. How can we really develop a system where we're, again, building agency for those older teens and those young people and ensure that they have a healthy touch point to go to, but are still developing all of and getting access to all of those opportunities that are appropriate for that age range. Right. Now, for those who are listening who may not fully understand this, I'm going to imagine the situation in New Mexico is at 18, young people can choose to exit the system and not take advantage of any of those things. That's right. And I think a lot of youth, like you're saying, they're like, I'm done. I don't want people telling me what to do anymore. (laughs) I just, I want to go out on my own. I'm ready. Unfortunately, I think a lot of young people don't realize that they're not really ready. So they flounder and we see the statistics that we see with this population. But I would imagine that the young people who stay and take advantage of those programs, it might be skewed because they might be the more motivated young people to succeed. Of course, I know all youth want to succeed in general, but then you have those who might be a little more resilient, who might apply that a little more. And so I'm just guessing if you were to research it, that you might find that the young people who stick around might be just a little extra motivated themselves. I I don't know if you see that. I personally haven't seen any of that data yet since that program is still relatively new. But I know the one thing our team is really incredible in kind of really thinking through a lot of those policy nuances. We made it a point to ensure that young people, yes, once they turn 18, they can opt in or opt out. And that can fluctuate throughout that age range. So if they say yes at 18, but then decide to leave, but they want to come back at age 20, they can re-opt into the programming here. And I think, you know, when we have had this conversation with community partners too, we always try to ensure that the adults are being held accountable in those spaces, right? Where if they see young people who are not wanting to engage in these range of ser- this range of services and support, we want to know why. If it's a barrier that adults that we need to shift our, our mindset around how we're treating this older this group of older youth because they recognize treating a 19-year-old is very different than treating a 10-year-old versus a 14-year-old versus a 6-year-old, right? Like how are adults really responding to the needs of these young people in an authentic way? And we're doing our best to address those challenges, right? Because if we're building these these opportunities for young people. We usually say within our organization, young people vote with their feet. If they aren't sticking around, they are going to engage in what feels authentic and what feels real. And if they aren't engaging, I think it's really up to the service provider and for us to really do an assessment of what's happening. Are there barriers that we are imposing upon young people that we really need to figure out, right? Like is the program, like workshops, is transit a problem, right? Is the hour of day a problem? Is the content, right? Like, so really trying to think through 
how for young people that are engaging and equally important, not engaging, what are those factors and how do we ensure that we can address those? And it seems that not only do you need the services to be authentic, you need them to be relevant. And it goes back to the way you customize your program for your youth. That's right. Not every young adult, when they reach 18, are needing to go in the same direction or wanting to go in the same direction. So I think you would really need to make sure that the services that you have are not one size fits all and that the young people can customize their path from 18 to 21. Yeah, and that's so important, right? And I think that's always so much easier said than done. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's also why for the size that we are, right, we've had some kind of conversations about like, how do we sustainably grow? Because we also recognize the amount of care that we're providing and putting into our programs to ensure that this isn't a one size fits all program, that it does feel as organic as possible for young people and authentic. That takes a lot of time to not have to really be present with young people in the experiences that they are in. And all of our programming, again, is really self-directed by them and how they engage. That takes a lot of time and support from our team. And you know what we're also trying to do too, which I didn't really mention, but has started to be so increasingly important over the past couple of years is how can we model this way of working with other community partners? Because if we're really talking about systems change, can understands that we're one organization, right? We're a drop in the bucket. We're not going to make, in spite of having great relationships with the state and other partners, unless all of us as a community really start to address how to best authentically work with young people, that's where the real systems change occurs. So one of... Um, our other colleagues, she oversees these monthly meetings that we call the Transition Age Youth Echo. And it's actually based on a model that was developed through the University of New Mexico called Project Echo for the medical field, where we are a largely rural state, right? So how do we use telehealth or basically Zoom? I mean, in a nutshell, it's a Zoom meeting for a doctor and a patient who's 300 miles away and any other health providers that are engaging with that patient. How do they look at this scenario for this one person, be fully present, and like everyone is talking to each other to do better, more comprehensive service delivery and support for that person? So we've started to do those things. We've been having these meetings probably for just under two years, maybe um, a year and a half, two years. And we invite service providers engaged with supporting young people impacted by systems. There's usually an anonymous case that's presented in that space where we say, hey, either my team or any of our community partners can bring forward a case in an anonymous safe way, kind of talk about some of the issues that a young person may be facing. And then there's some collective recommendations in that space. There's also some didactic learning where we're constantly thinking about how do we authentically operationalize authentic youth engagement. And then uh, we also have a youth panel who serve as the experts in that echo space. They hold the adults accountable in that space, right? You know, they may be reviewing how to brainstorm some opportunities to address what's realistic for the young person who they're talking about. But our youth panel was really there to be like, from my experience, this is 
a consideration that you need to additionally think about when I was going through this myself. So really trying to think through how can we start to model these conversations with other providers and really just do a better job of authentic collaboration with those folks also. That's kind of the lowercase p, right, when it comes to policy and practice to ensure that we're not just working at a legislative level or um, working with some of those policies, but from just a practice level for our peers. How do we ensure that they're trying to adopt these same ways of working, which can really amount to the systems change we need? Right. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the things that we really want to try to encourage others to do is to adopt best practices and network. Like you're saying, build a network, share best practices, start applying best practices, as opposed to just uh, reinventing the wheel or floundering. Right, right. And so I think if we can strengthen the network of organizations like yours and others who work with this age group in foster care, and we can start to identify the best practices, which are also being identified in research, but I'm not sure how many people are out there reading the research. (laughs) It's a matter of really just capturing all of that and putting into some kind of actionable model. That's right. I think that's really the goal here. But unfortunately, I think we're probably at the end of our time here. So I want to ask before we end this conversation, if people were interested in contacting you and donating to your efforts, what's the best way for people to do that? Sure. They can go to our website, which is nmcan.org. So as in New Mexico, C-A-N.org. And they can donate there. They can learn about our volunteer opportunities. The one thing I you know, got so engrossed in talking about our volunteer opportunity as a mentor, but then we also have through our financial literacy program, we have volunteers who serve as financial coaches, where that's a little bit of goal setting around helping young people achieve financial goals. So that's really great too for those volunteers who are, who are more goal oriented and want to lay out some clear plans. Like That's another really great way for folks to engage with us too, but everything's at the website. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you, Laurelyn, for being with us today and telling us about yourself, telling us about your program. I really admire the work that you're doing and how you're supporting the young people in your area. And I just really hope that the work that you're doing in the policy and advocacy also can continue to make a big difference there in New Mexico. Awesome. Thanks, Lynn. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. All right. For those who have listened to the end, thank you very much for doing so. As I stated in just about every podcast, we put one of these out every couple of weeks. So keep checking the website, agingoutinstitute.org, and or going to your podcast distributing uh, services like uh, iTunes or Podbean or so forth. And you can find our podcast there as well, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Thank you very much for listening.